Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monhan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application layering product on the market. And also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, mitigate ransomware, and more. PolicyPack also feature in one of the scripts, tricks, and tips this week, so keep listening for that. And now for some news. The first story this week is about Google Chrome getting broken by mistake in enterprise environments running it on RDSH. Users kept seeing white screens on open Chrome tabs, blocking access to the browser and just leaving it totally unresponsive. It's reported that after complaints, Google confirmed they released a stealth update to stable versions of Chrome. The Verge reported that the issue started when Google flipped the switch on a flag to enable a new web contents occlusion feature that's designed to suspend Chrome tabs when you move other apps on top of them to reduce resource usage when the browser isn't in use. This flag has actually been in beta for five months and it was turned on for the stable releases via an experiment that was pushed to released Chrome on Tuesday morning. And prior to that, it had been on for about 1% for the stable Chrome version users with no reports of issues. It was stated that they've now rolled back the experiment to try and get some time to figure out how to deal with the RDSH problem and specifically with Citrix since obviously Citrix is the biggest footprint for uh, published applications in an enterprise environment. The report suggests admins were really upset about it, and I could understand that. The report uses an example of a Costco IT Citrix admin reporting about all the problems that it caused for them. They're pretty heavily reliant on Google Chrome. But I'm kind of of two minds of it. It sounds like they went through a somewhat decent process for testing before switching it on, and they were just starting to ramp it up. And the feature sounds like it would actually help a lot because one of the problems with Chrome is it's very resource intensive even when users are just kind of idling with it. So hopefully they fix the problem and re-release the feature. ZDNet have reported on a Gmail bug that a member of the security team at Google has called awesome. They haven't released a formal comment on the security vulnerability to date, but replied to the post containing info on the bug as it was submitted, just stating, the bug is awesome, thanks for reporting. The bug in question takes advantage of something called DOM clobbering, which is becoming more common because emails these days don't just contain texts anymore. They contain embedded images and objects in HTML. This one's really difficult to explain, but to try and keep it as simple as possible, and hopefully I don't butcher it by trying to simplify it, 
basically when an embedded object or a dynamic feature within Gmail that uses HTML tries to call out to a JavaScript function to do something like object lookup and fails to find the object, it throws a 404 error, which, yeah, sounds expected, can't find it, sure. But unfortunately, you can take advantage of this behavior by writing a payload to overload the program. So basically, you can wedge in something for it to find. So basically trick it to think that it's found what it's looking for because the way it's looking for certain objects is maybe a little too wide open and you can trick it by putting your own payload in there and just overload the program and kill it. It's pretty interesting. The code itself is pretty protected. There's protections to prevent somebody from altering the actual code but for this bug, someone figured out how to take advantage of the behavior of a function by doing something outside of the code, basically just causing it to break. Basically just causing it to break. It's pretty clever. Another patch Tuesday and another patch problem. This time it's affecting Windows 10 1903 and 1909. KB4524570 has resulted in people receiving error codes such as 0x873701 and 0x80901D while trying to install the update. For most people, I don't think it will be a problem as Microsoft have already issued a fixed patch. But according to an MSPowerUser.com report, people are still reporting the issue. But luckily, there is a workaround. Microsoft suggests you can open start menu or search and type CMD to open command prompt and you'll have to run that command prompt as a admin to ensure it's elevated and then just run a dism command. So dism slash online slash cleanup dash image slash start component cleanup. Wait a few minutes and then just restart the system and then check for updates again and it should work. ZDNet had a pretty interesting report from OpSWAT on the usage of different antivirus programs in enterprise. Their research has found Symantec is still the most widely used at 13.56%, which is interesting after last week's story that a virus definition update was causing blue screen of deaths on server 2016 machines. I guess it was felt by more people than I had assumed. ESET, McAvee, and Bitdefender round out the top four and all have double digits for market share percentage. Kaspersky is fifth, which is a little surprising to me considering the bad press they've been getting for the last several years. Sophos has about 3.62%. You may recall they were also recently subject to an acquisition, so it's interesting to see where they are in the market right now prior to acquisition. Windows Defender was not considered for the report due to it being there by default in the operating system. It's understandable that they omit it for that reason, but in my experience, more organizations are moving to it right now. So the report is an incomplete picture, but still interesting nonetheless to see how the other products fare. MSPowerUser.com reported on the upcoming November update for Windows 10. I've covered it 
quite a bit in previous episodes, so at this point, you most likely know this one is a little different to previous releases. It is a much smaller update than some of the previous updates. What I didn't realize before reading this article though, is that if using the media creation tool for installing the update on another PC, since the tool can't run a prerequisite check, it won't be able to determine if the update is compatible with third-party software. Also, for now, Microsoft is blocking the November 2019 update on some Realtek Bluetooth radio drivers. Apart from these old Realtek drivers, no issues have been reported, so you should be able to proceed and install the update on your other machines. I apologize if my voice is kind of going in and out a little bit. <clears throat> I am under the weather again, and unfortunately that's just part of the deal when you're trying to do a podcast every single week. Sometimes my voice is not going to be as strong as others. A quick follow-up on last week's story about an acquisition offer from Xerox for HP. HP have rejected the offer. HP state they, quote, recognize the potential benefits of consolidation, end quote. And they've left the door open to engage with Xerox to better understand their business and any value to be created from a combination. As Patrick Moorhead commented on Twitter, this likely suggests they are open to an acquisition but want a larger offer. Maybe because this Xerox acquisition offer is so public, this may raise the interest of some other large company out there who could potentially try to acquire HP. Security company Tenable reported 19 security vulnerabilities in VOIP adapters from Cisco's SPA100 series. Hackers could eavesdrop on users' conversations, initiate fraudulent phone calls, and even pivot further into their internal network. They're also able to steal credentials, create super users with full privileges, and execute arbitrary code. They've also explained how they also went on to explain how they were able to achieve privilege escalation on Cisco's VoIP adapters, saying, quote, We were able to take the lower privileged Cisco user, leak the admin user's password hash, and then pass the hash to elevate their privileges. Separately, we were able to use an arbitrary file read to defeat ASLR and then exploit a stack overflow to achieve code execution as a root, end quote. By using Shodan, the security researchers were able to identify a total of 3,662 potentially vulnerable devices. So if you're using a Cisco SPA 100 series VoIP adapter, it is highly recommended that you update to the latest firmware before these flaws are exploited in the wild. Information for the 2020 Masters Retreat has been published with the early bird sale now on. For just $995, you get a whole lot. Most meals will be provided. There will be a party, of course. There will be non-conference related activities. So, for example, last year, some of the attendees cycled the Greenway in Scottsdale. Some hiked the mountain. Others rode motorcycles up some of the best highways in the United States and much more. Also, we also enjoyed deep technical sessions, including one with the owner of the RDP protocol at Microsoft. We enjoyed a keynote by Chris Matthew, the creator of OctoBlue and Computes. We also had non-technical sessions on things like personal branding and career guidance. And actually, one of the attendees 
got hooked up with a job while at the event. And actually in that session that I just talked about, so that was pretty cool. The Masters Retreat is a very unique event. The super early bird for E2EVC Madrid just closed. You definitely don't want to miss this early bird. It's close to $500 off the price. The event will be held in Scottsdale, Arizona again at the perfect time of year for Arizona weather. April 17th through April 19th. You are pretty much guaranteed glorious weather, good food, and great company. Steve Knoll shared a pretty cool quick demo video he created showing the n-factor capabilities with Citrix Netscaler ADC. In the demo he shows nine different factors for authentication. Nine obviously wouldn't be very practical for a good user experience, but it does show you some of what's possible in layering together many different forms of authentication checks. He says there's a blog to come, so keep your eyes peeled for that. On November 22nd, Intel will be removing driver and BIOS updates downloads for some of their older products. BleepingComputer.com reported that they have noticed several of the available downloads on the download page have a warning in the text above stating, This download will no longer be available after November 22nd, 2019 and will not be supported with any additional functional, security, or other updates. If you know you've got some older Intel products in your environment, it's a good idea to make sure you have a backup of the drivers just in case. I saw a pretty interesting tweet this week. It contained a video of Brad Anderson from Microsoft doing a live demo showing him powering on his laptop, it logging in, and then him launching a browser. The entire end-to-end -end of that took just under 12 seconds, which is quicker than Conor McGregor knocked out Jose Aldo. It's pretty mind-boggling. You know, I've achieved six-second logon durations with Citrix NAP, but the server's already on at that stage, so, you know, 11 seconds to power on, log in, and to launch an application is seriously impressive. Microsoft security expert Rayan commented saying, internal Microsoft folks thought that there was something wrong with his machine because of the number of reboots he was performing. It turns out he just shows off how quick his machine reboots a lot. Personally, I probably would too. And for the second week in a row, I'm featuring an article by The Guardian. This week, they talked about Mozilla Firefox and its, quote, fight for the future of the web, end quote, which is part of their title. It details some of the measures Mozilla have taken when it comes to data privacy and how they are driven by trying to make browsing the web a more pleasurable experience over any other goal. So maybe a little bit of a pot shot at the likes of Google, who obviously make a lot of money through advertising. The article goes on to the debate of vendors like Apple and Google shipping default browsers with macOS, Chrome OS, iOS, and Android, and the thin line they walk with EU regulations, with Microsoft being the precedence for falling out of line with those EU regulations on uh, anti-competition. You may recall several years ago they had to put out their browser choice ridiculous desktop shortcut because of the EU regulation in the case they lost. It has been a bit strange that macOS ships with Safari, obviously Chrome OS is Chrome, but at this moment they haven't fallen foul of the EU somehow. If you listen to the podcast, you'll have heard me talk about Mozilla's cool innovative DNS over HTTPS or DOE protocol, which will encrypt DNS traffic when browsing, which then in turn masks your calls to websites and URLs from prying eyes. 
And Google have since followed suit and announced they would be jumping on DNS over HTTPS 2 in Chrome in an experimental fashion. Well, Microsoft have now announced they intend to support DNS over HTTPS as a protocol in a future Windows 10 release. And BleepingComputer.com has reported that they are also leaving open the door to the possibility that they could support DNS over TLS in future too. It stated that for now, DNS over HTTPS is a higher priority as it's seen to provide immediate value to everyone. Like Google and Mozilla, it appears Microsoft will support it in a least disruptive fashion, at least to begin with. They will not be forcing any changes to which DNS server Windows was configured to use by the user or network. In future, Windows 10 users and admins will also be able to set up DNS over HTTPS servers explicitly using a dedicated interface within the Windows DNS settings. So that sounds really promising for enterprise customers. And finally, this week, community legend and fellow Citrix CTP, Tobias Creedle, announced he is set to retire from his current role at Northern Arizona University. I wish him all the best for the future, and if you know Tobias, you may want to send on your congratulations too. Enjoy retirement, Tobias. And now this week, a hot job. I had the pleasure of meeting Peter Korish at E2EVC in Lisbon, and this week I noticed he shared a job posting for ThinScale. They are looking for a digital marketing manager at their office in Dunleary, Dublin. So if you're based in Ireland, or even if you're not, and you're interested in moving to Dublin, Dunleer is a really nice spot too, by the way. This one might be one for you. The successful candidate will own the end-to-end marketing plan, orchestration, and execution of that plan to achieve business, sales, and marketing objectives. You will monitor and report on ROI metrics showing impact and alignment with overall marketing, sales, and business objectives. You will develop and own lead generation plans based on a strong understanding of the audience, value proposition, and business strategy, and more. The candidate should have at least six plus years proven experience in B2B tech marketing, ideally software virtualization or cloud space targeting a technical audience. A bachelor's degree in marketing communications or related field or demonstrable experience. He should be data-driven and will use data and analysis to inform strategy and possess a good understanding of impact of the different digital levers you can use across inbound and outbound streams. Then there's the obvious ones of like being able to work well in a team, strong organizational skills and attention to detail, excellent communication skills, written and verbal, but also a familiarity with the breadth of sales and marketing tools, ideally Salesforce, HubSpot, or similar marketing automation software, and good working understanding of organic and paid search like with Google Analytics, AdWords, HubSpot, and Salesforce. ThinScale offer a competitive compensation package with commission-based earnings, and there's a potential for career advancement in a fast-paced, growing organization. And now the weekly webinar. On November 21st at 11 a.m. Central, Liquidware will be holding a webinar. They will discuss pure cloud desktop as a service options from Amazon, Microsoft, and Nutanix, and what exactly these offerings are. They will also showcase how you can use Liquidware's products to assess, design, 
migrate, validate, and manage your end users and applications no matter what path you take. If you're working for an MSP or a CSP, it could be worth attending to keep yourself up to date on the latest tech to help in your day-to-day -day work. And now some scripts, tricks, and tips. Elke Klein shared a brief but golden blog post on installing Office 2019 from Microsoft Partner Center with Deployment Tool. That's the Office Deployment Tool. I haven't deployed Office 2019 yet in an enterprise setup, but the good news is it's almost exactly like deployments of previous versions with ODT. The only difference to me that I could see, and maybe it's not a change and it's just something I never worked with since I haven't been working with a partner lately, is that the channel element in the XML accepts unique values for MPN partner licenses. So if you think this applies to you, I'll provide a link to Helga's blog post with this episode, which is episode 99 on 5bytespodcast.com. You'll, you'll find it under reference links. Jeremy Moskowitz, David Miller, Brad Rudisale, and possibly even others too collaborated on a massive and detailed step-by-step -step guide for setting up Windows Virtual Desktop. In their post, they give a nod to Christian Brinkoff and his excellent guide. Cheap plug for myself, but I also posted a pretty comprehensive blog post detailing how to set it up using CloudJumper, which you can get a free trial of until January. And as they note, there are also a lot of other technical blog posts that go through step by step. But personally, I think the post on PolicyPack's website offers something a little bit different to a lot of the step by step guides that I've seen. It's not just a mindless click this, check this checkbox type of guide. They give some context when it is merited. So you know why you are picking a certain option over the other and making informed decisions. I mentioned Shodan a little earlier during one of the news stories, which is a really great site for those with an interest in InfoSec. You can find all kinds of goodies by searching for say like port numbers to see a list of sites, services, and IP public facing that have open ports. They also have some favorites sections with some easy to see things like web cameras open to the public. Scary but interesting stuff. Well, this week I learned about census.io, which is C E N S Y S.io, which does that too, but also has a search for websites, kind of like Qualysis, but with some different information in there. And it allows you the ability to search based on certificates too. So I think you combine Shodan and you use Census too, and you've got some really great resources for security purposes. And also I mentioned Qualysys, that's a pretty good one too. And that's it for another episode. Thank you all so much for listening.